Well, good evening, everyone. It's an absolute joy and a privilege to be with you. And uh, if you, uh, if I haven't seen you before, my name is Peter, and uh, it's always an absolute honor to be uh, with this group of people. Uh, I have been associated uh, with this group for a long time, that for a long time, since many of you are very young, but I, uh, it's always an absolute honor to come and see people that love Jesus and know how to do community well together. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Um, I do have built a bit of muscle since last time you've seen me. I've been uh, going to the gym. Uh, no, I have a little cast, uh, which is a, a bit of an exaggeration. I went to the hospital on, on Monday uh, to get a, a lump out. And I wake up and I find my arm in a cast. I didn't think my arm was broken unless they broke it when they're playing table tennis with me in the operation theater. Uh, but uh, he is, so if I don't shake your hand, uh, no one. But uh, today I wanted to uh, do something very simple. Uh, and uh, I was strong to do too much in, uh, in my preparation to share something uh, that I've been learning over 14 years. So can you try to summarize something you've been learning over 14 years in one time? So I decided that today I'm just going to try to convince you that it's worth thinking about. That's all I'm going to do today. I'm going to share with you something that started for me in May 2007. And I just finished this journey of research just this month. So I'm not going to try to tell you this works or this is important. I just want to ask you to potentially consider that it may be helpful for you. If I do that, maybe I'll be invited back and show you how we can do it. But tonight is just simple an introduction. For those of you who were in the camp this year, I can't believe it's, it, it was in January sometime. I spoke about the idea that Christianity, and I don't know if uh, most of you are, are Christians or some of you exploring the Christian faith, uh, but the reality is Christianity is not about making a decision to follow Jesus and waiting until you go to heaven where you're going to really enjoy life thereafter. And then we make Christianity about the world to come. I attempted to persuade you that Christianity is being here on earth a certain type of person. Christianity is being on earth a certain type of person that eventually get to live that certain type of person for eternity. But first of all, Christianity is not about a set of belief and assertion and activities that you do that tick the box and you treat God, you give Him your sin and He'll give you His forgiveness and you live life as you wish until one day He takes you to heaven, which we don't even know what it is, but you know, we, we're waiting for that. I think Christianity is a little bit more relevant for you right here and right now. And it's about being a certain type. What is that certain type? It's being the ultimate human being that God created you and I to be. Jesus came to restore the original image that God created us to be and we stuffed it up. So once you stuff it up, 
God didn't say, oh, yeah, such bad luck. Oh, don't worry about it. We will just think of another, of another thing where I just go to earth and give them a set of beliefs and they're going to sign up to these beliefs and we'll be fine. Well, God didn't change his mind. God still wanted people to be in his own image and in his likeness. That when people smell you outside this room, you have a little bit of an aroma of Jesus. You have the perfume of Jesus stuck to you. It's just you can't help it. It's not something that you do when you feel like it. It's something that you grow being like. I was listening to a professor who talks about writing. And he said, we tell students. He was in, in, talking about admission of students in a course of writing. And he said, we tell students, you don't write because, you, because it feels good. You write because you can't help it. I thought, wow. You write because you can't live without it. The reality of Christianity is that we don't tell people, be like Jesus because it feels good. It doesn't. But you can't help it. Because Jesus ultimately was a selfless version of humanity. And we ultimately are selfish version of humanity. That is the huge, a huge difference in our life. We are bent on living for ourselves. We are bent on hugging ourselves. You just think about it. The culture of selfie, and I'm not saying selfie is bad. Please don't hear me. Uh, but a selfie is a hug of yourself. We still are living in a narcissistic type of life. We love ourselves too much. And we love those people around us who make us feel good about ourselves. Yet Jesus stood above everybody else and was loved by everybody else. And he was liked. Even those people who were nothing like him liked him because he was selfless. Can you imagine? You know, many of you are not married yet. But can you imagine a selfish partner? And say, I love you so much because you're so damn selfish. You amaze me every morning. You wake up wanting it's all about you. Oh, I love you so much. Can you ever imagine that? Can you even imagine a partner, a worker goes into an interview and gives the CV. It's all about me, brother. It's all about me. I'm going to look for the best possible task I can do with the least possible energy and effort required. I am your man. I'm the asset for your organization. I am all about me. Like We all know intuitively that that's stupid. It doesn't sell. But we've learned when we got into an interview, it's all about it. Don't you love it when you ask people, what do you do in conflict? Oh, man, conflict. Oh, I just, I just let my ego go. I just don't even, re- I don't even talk back to people. No, no, no. I just punch them in the face. You know? no, we're just angels in the interview. You're selfless. In the interview. And why do you want this job? No, it's not about the money. No, no. I just love serving people. Oh, man. I just, just love it. It just comes naturally. You know? I just give it out of the board. And this organization, I've been dreaming about this organization for so long. The last few days I read about it in the website. I've been thinking about it. Oh, man. I just wish this my entire dream in life to make you guys the best, best organization in the world. I was like, seriously, we know the lingo. 
We're not selflessness cells. We're not so can you imagine a doctor? You know, I had the surgeon. Can you imagine a surgeon or not? I don't know a few of you doctors, I'm not picking on you. But can you imagine a surgeon on the bed and I walk in and say, Man, you know, you, you, you make, I make a lot of money out of you. I, I don't care about the lump in your arm. Then I, I, I just, you know, after an hour or two, I'm going to be about a few thousand dollars better than you. It's like, can you imagine? You'd vomit right there. It wouldn't be a pretty theater. It'd be awful. But they were so nice. It's like I'm going into a wedding. I have eight people taking me in, pushing me in, and everybody's smiling. And people going to go into a party. Then I'm going to go down and go, mm. The reality is we know selflessness sells at least when we know how to treat people. But why would we? Why would we, when it is possible, when it is possible to offer my wife and for you to offer your husband a selfless person? Why would you, why would you shortcut that? Why would you shortcut that, that when you play for a team, people think you're the best team player. You're not an arrogant, self-centered hero. But they look and say, this guy, he's in it for the team. And it is possible. It is possible to be in a church and actually care about the people around you more than how you look and how you feel and how much you have. It is actually possible. And it's possible because we are made to a pattern. And the pattern is Jesus. It is possible to live a life that people envy. Not because you're arrogant. Because you're so insanely selfless in the way you live. So how are we made to a pattern? If God was a fashion designer, if God was a tailor, how would he form you? How would he form me? And that is exactly the question I had in 2007. I was a pastor of a church plant. And uh, the, we, we used to have on a Wednesday night, the connect group leaders, like the leaders of small groups will come and meet with me. And we'll have a report of how we're going in, in what we call discipleship. So we had a particular uh, curriculum that we did in small groups of 10 to 12 people, something like that. And, and this particular night, I don't know what they had for dinner, but they gave it to me that night. There were about seven of them, and every, I was asking to review some of the things we're doing. Say, so, ah, oh, we don't love this curriculum, it's too hard. Somebody else says, we don't love this curriculum, it's just too easy. Yeah, people say, it's easy or it's hard. It was just a horrible experience where people said, it just wasn't building anyone around. Like, we're learning information, but it's not changing people. And as a godly person, the first thing I did. I actually, within me, said, because it's, you're an idiot. You couldn't help your group members develop. You know, that was the first thing in my mind. It's not me. It's not the curriculum. It's just you. You're not a good leader. It lasted a couple of hours. And in May 2007, I decided, I am sick and tired of telling people, you must grow. And I want to learn how people grow. That took me literally 14 years trying to understand how people grow and develop and become a certain type of person. And I wish I had all the 
knowledge about it to share with you. But I know one thing that I'm going to share with you today. We know that in Romans uh, 8.29, it says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined, or destined from the beginning, to be molded into the image of His Son, that is, share inwardly His likeness. So we know that that's God's heart. That means it should be the church's heart. It should be every Christian's heart that we will be molded, that we will be conformed, that we will look like, smell like, sound like, act like what Jesus would be. That's the ultimate. So I always say that, and probably heard me say it a thousand times, Christianity, the goal of Christianity is Christ-likeness, not heaven-bound. Christ-likeness is the goal. In fact, in, in eternity... You're going to be Christ-like. He says, when we see Him, we'll be like Him. 1 John chapter 3. Alright? So, how do we do it? In the church, we say, listen to sermons. Participate in ministry activities. Maybe even get into some mentoring. Maybe get into small group environments. Study, podcasts, reading, all this type of stuff. And you will become more like Jesus. That's roughly what we have in mind. We have all these activities that we hope would become like a factory that would take someone from this to that, from who they are to what they meant to be. Research uh, done by, uh, in, in by 11,000 surveys in seven churches in the U.S., including Willow Creek at the time, that was uh, mid-2000s. They did 120 interviews and then one, one-on-one in-depth interviews and did some literature review and they said this at the very end. That's the first point. Involvement in church activity does not, does not predict or drive long-term spiritual growth. Does not predict. That means everything we're doing is not leading us to grow spiritually worse than that. This was done in a, uh, in a, in a research by Lifeway. It's a, it was a, a huge, uh, I think it would have, it would have been, um, I can't fully remember, but it's, it's around 4,000 uh, surveys that were conducted. And they did over this over a three-year period. And this is what they said at the end. Some discipleship models deployed by churches may not have the slightest resemblance to what is possible in delivering transformation to people. Not the slightest resemblance. That means what we are doing is not leading us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But it's doing great things. It's helping us cognitively to grasp biblical ideas and theological doctrines and maybe involved in some excellent activities and and some volunteering opportunities that enabling us to serve other people. But the one thing it's not helping us is transform who we are. And you know, the data is helping us see this. How many people are interested in data? I know you're health, primarily health students. Anybody interested in statistics here? I should just let go of this, right? Okay, I'm going to give you the easy version of it. Hey, you're a dentist, mate. You shouldn't be interested in that. <laughs> this is the 2021 census. It's saying that there is a decline of 8.6% of Christians. In how long do you reckon? In how long? Five years. Five years. Since 2016, Christians declined 9%. Every denomination except Oriental Orthodox declined by 9%. 
Now, it's 44% of Australians identify as Christians. Okay, let me ask you something. How many of those people go to churches, do you reckon? They're the people that tick the box, I'm a Christian. How many? Just have a, have a guess. Half? Huh? 10%. You're right. 7 to 10% of Australians, not of those, 7 to 10% of Australians attend on a weekly basis to a church. How many of the 10% of Australians who attend churches are actually living for Jesus throughout the week? There is an increase of 40% in five years of people who say we don't identify with a religion. 40% in five years say we don't identify with a religion. The worst decline in Christianity happens between people in age 25 and 34. That's why I've dedicated my life to work with young adults. There's 18% decline, that's minus 18, when in this particular group there has been an increase of 7.6 in the population. Very simple mathematics, 25% decline in young adults, young professionals. That's serious. That means in four times the period of five years, you will have no young adults if it goes with the same pattern. That's five years, 25%. So... Do that, and you're gone within 20 years. So why? We've got this many churches. We've got this many amazing Christian groups. We've got camera light. What do you call it? Light camera action or whatever. You know, we've got a lot of funky stuff. Smoke and and understanding and podcasts and, and more information than we could ever understand or read. Like, seriously. Why? Why? Look at that. 1901, there were 96% people identified as Christians. 96%! It's 40. You don't understand statistics? I don't care. But I reckon that's called decline. <laughs> that's serious decline. And we could put our head in the sands. Oh, it's done it. She'll be right. Now she won't. <laughs> What do we do? We need people who are formed and multiplied in communities. That's what we need. We've done the big thing for so long. And let me tell you, it hasn't worked and will not work. It inspires, but it doesn't form a person. You're not formed Except if you go to a Collingwood game, you don't get formed in a crowd. You get formed in your family. Some of you are Egyptians in here. And the reality is, when you scratch the surface, you've got some Egyptian silly things going on in there, right? I remember when I first came to Australia, we were walking out of the airport like 10 minutes into Australia, walking out of the airport, and there was an older person with a short, you know, the, the shorts. And my dad looked at the guy and says, in a few years time, you'll be wearing shorts as well. I said, no, why? It's not going to happen. I, I, I thought about cutting in shorts today. But uh, because we do change over time. But we have, you know, the, in, in Egypt, you're either a doctor or you're an engineer. Otherwise, you're a nothing, right? 
In Egypt, you don't date anybody, or back in my days, you don't date anyone unless you're married, okay? Then you get to date your spouse. So you've got a lot of things that you get to that form who you are in little communities. You're, you know, I remember, uh, you know, uh, in our family, big deal is hospitality. So if, if people came into our house, we would sit in the kitchen and eat yesterday's food and they get to eat today's food, which sucked. All right. And, and mom would put food for, you know, 300 people. If there's three people at your foot, you know, you guys know this stuff, you know. And, and, and when we came to Australia, when my dad get invited, him and a couple of our friends, they get invited into places. They go, you know, how many people come? They say three people. And they have three pieces of food. <laughs> and my dad, he looked at us, am I allowed to have that? Okay. <laughs> you know, he, he wants to have a lot so he can pick one that is not noticed. All right. So we actually are formed in our little communities. Uh, that's what happens. You don't get formed in crowds. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we need something that forms our being, not only changes our minds and modifies our behavior. When you are around a certain group of people, you are being shaped of who you are. You know, that's the reality of our humanity. We're shaped by the people who are closest to us for good or for evil, right? When you're around a certain group of people for a long period of time, sometimes you have the same jokes, the same lingo, the same, you know, some of the silly stuff they do. And you laugh at some dumb jokes when you take it to outsiders and think, oh, you're a weirdo. But, but, but it was really, really funny in that group. You see, we are formed. In a group. So we need a strategy for discipling that is pretty much smallish in our group where we are being formed. So I was reading the other day, uh, this is so small, but I was, I read one of those things. I was reading the other day a book called Foundations in Spiritual Formation. And a guy who's an incredible person who is, uh, you know, he's, he, he, He's in a seminary that produced some insane leaders in the U.S. Some, if I mention some of their names, you know them because they are so insanely influential in the way they shape people's spirituality. And this guy says this, and they're all big churches people. So it's amazing that this guy, Howard Hendrick, would say uh, about smaller groups. But that's what he says. He says, you need to spend time with a group of men or women for whom the number one passion in their lives is becoming more like Jesus Christ. You need to be involved in a godly group, not a perfect group. That's the first thing that I notice. He says, we all need someone who loves us. Listen to this, but is not impressed with us. You and I need somebody to love us, yet not being impressed with us. Someone who will ask us the hard questions. When do we do that? Do you ever say, turn around like in a church or, or here or whatever it is, turn around and they say, hey, turn around and ask someone next to you a hard question. The best we do in a church is turn around and say hello, because that's really going to change somebody's life. You've got to ask some hard questions. I need to be asked some hard questions. I needed to make a serious decision about a work thing about three or four weeks ago. I made all the calculation, evaluation, all of that. And then I went to a guy that I know who is a lot older than me. And I said, listen, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking of doing. You need to ask me some questions. I don't know him very well. I, I, look, I only had really serious conversations with him maybe about four or five times. 
But I respect him. I said, listen, I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to ask you to ask me how to do Don't come and tell me, oh, you do this or do that. I'm, I'm not interested in cards, what you call a reading card. I want somebody to ask me a hard question and, and figure out the mess on the inside. Because my motives, I can't tell. When I look in the mirror, my motives are all godly. But when somebody asks me a question, I figure out, oh my goodness. All believers should be growing as individual believers in community. Life change, listen to this, life change happens best in the context of authentic biblical community. Community is where you and I are formed to be a certain type of, so why? why sorry, why not? Why don't we engage in transparent communities where people hear our stories, our mess, our strength, our weaknesses, ask us hard questions, you know, facilitate for us a way where we are actually made supported, challenged and accountable. How come we don't do that? Let me tell you very, very briefly. Number one is our reputation. We have learned in a Christian environment or a Christian environments overall to guard our image. You gotta act like my goodness. I don't sin, but I'm gonna I'm gonna apologize just in case one day accidentally I make a mistake. But it's not likely that I will. You know, I, I I'm not perfect, but I'm very close to it. You know, that's the type of stuff that we try to convince one another of doing, because we heighten the value of reputation in Christianity rather than character formation. Because when somebody said, you know, when you hear somebody made a significant mistake, it's like, oh, are they even Christians? Yes, they are. They're probably more sincere than you because they acknowledge their mistakes. The second thing that we worry about is that we put high value in, on events that we don't have time for a small group environments. We just put, oh man, God was in the room. Why? Because it was loud music, nice drumming, and some smoke. God was in the room. God is in a room all the time, whether there's drums or not. If there are two or three people together who are putting the name of Jesus high up, He is pretty much there. I can bet my life on it. And you intuitively know that He is. Skills. We don't have the capacity how to deal with smaller environments. We get scared. It's like, what are we going to talk about? Is it going to be like a confession time? And like we're not Catholic. It's like, ooh, are they going to see straight? Somebody used to say to Susie, I don't want to talk to Peter. He sees straight through me. I can't see straight through you, not water. Oh, you know, it's like ridiculous. The way we're so worried about ourselves is because we don't have the skills how to manage respectful, honest, vulnerable communication with one another. So, why should we? I'm not going to go through that. I'll do it another time. But there are some hindrances to small groups. And this was an incredible research I found, a PhD research about some small groups that don't work. Actually, for the heck of it. Um, <laughs> there are small groups that don't work. More lecturing, less interactive learning. There were small group, groups in California. Uh, not being vulnerable and transparent, only asking knowledge, knowledge questions, covering too much material, not challenging participants to apply learning. That was not transformative learning. That hinders transformative development in, in, in a sense. So why community? And this is what I told you. I'm just only going to give you three reasons. Just to consider that it may be worth I'm not, I'm not, at the end of it, it's not a, come up the front if you believe you want to be part of a transformative, a transparent community. I'm going to pray over you. And whilst you're not looking, I'm going to take your names and I'm going to bug you for three years. None of that. 
I just want you, between you and God, maybe consider, is it worth thinking about this a bit more? Because you might be part, you're definitely part of a thriving community. Man, I look at, at, at this community, I've been here for the, every time I'm here, I, I see it even growing further. And the community is beautiful, and I see laughter, I see people connecting with each other, it feels like family. It's beautiful. Then you might even have smaller community, like you've got prayer gatherings, and you've got games, and you've got all of that type of stuff. So I know you have smaller communities. But I wonder if you have also engaged in transparent communities with four or so people that you can actually share vulnerably with them. I'm going to give you a biblical reason, one biblical reason, and I could give you a whole thesis of it, an educational reason and a ministry reason. Very, very briefly, and I'm finished. Number one, a community. As you know, Jesus didn't ask people to come and follow him one by one. Right? Matthew 3, uh, Mark 3 says he brought the 12 to be with him. And they lived life together. And you know what? They realized that that was serious business. That when the church had 3,000 converts in one day, they were devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and fellowship. You're going to say to me, yes, it was a mega church in the New Testament. No, it wasn't. You know why? Because it says that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere. They didn't have palaces just in case you thought they did. They couldn't have had 3,000 people or 100 people in the houses. It was a size of extended family homes. They did life together in small groups. In James chapter 5, it says, confess your sins to one another. I am confident they didn't confess their sins in front of 150 people. That would be degrading. But they would have had a small number of transparent groups where you're allowed and you can trust people to talk about life, weaknesses, strength. Well, you know, I reckon it's harder to talk about your strength with people that you love than talk about weaknesses because we all love it, you know, when there is disaster and there is mess. But there's competition when there is strength. But you want to find a group of people that you can share your life. Strength and weaknesses, flaws and, 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 and wins. Biblical. The church throughout was a community, community that were united in a love and fellowship with one another. Education, there is something called community of practice. I spent years and years and years learning about this. Uh, two social researchers, uh, one called Lav and another one called Wenger, they studied apprenticeship. They tried to understand how people learn. So they studied apprenticeship of tailors in uh, Liberia and Africa. They spent five years with a, a shop of, uh, you know, in a strip of shops where there are tailors, you know, hundreds of tailors. And they discovered one thing. One of the things they discovered, they called the community of practice. That people don't learn, from, we, we would think a tailor, an apprentice, you learn from the master. You know, the master standing, you know, does all the stuff, and everyone, yeah, how do you do that? And you go ask him. says, what they discovered, they're hardly connected with the master tailor. They're connected with each other. Because can you imagine 
like in Egypt, it makes sense. You know, you go, Dad, can you help me? So I was like, Got someone else to help you, all right? You know, you've got enough brothers and sisters in the, in the family, just go get somebody to help you out. And the same thing there is like the, the, the master talent didn't really help people develop, it was the apprentices around. And they call it a community practice. These communities are defined as groups of people who share a concern or a passion about something they do and learn how to do it better, how? As they interact regularly. They learn how to do something better as they interact regularly. So they have a common purpose, they call it common domain, they have mutual engagement, and they have shared repertoire or shared practices. You know, people who play soccer together, they do that all the time. They have a group of people who share a concern to play well and they learn how to do it better unless they played, you know, for my Egyptian team in my first game. We didn't learn how to do it better, we learned how to do it worse. Um, or the laughter of the community. But at least we did something good. We made people laugh at us. Um, but the reality is we all know how to do that. Bands, they get together to get better at playing music. People who are, you know, in a particular profession, they get together to get better at doing something as they interact, not just learn information. So we call that social learning, and we discover that, that, that people learn best in communities. Not just, I know a lot of you are academic freaks, so you probably learn by just reading, all right? So, but you're not the norm. You're, you're, you're a pretty unique group of people. Most people learn socially. They learn by observation, they learn by imitation, they learn by dialogue. When, you know, we, 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 uh, a very simple thing I'll say to you that happens when people are in a transparent community. We all have assumptions, wouldn't you agree? We have assumptions about things that we treat as reality. So, for example, you're walking out of a shopping center, you saw me the other day, you saw me here today, and somehow you're in a shopping center tomorrow, and I walk straight past you, all right? And I'm walking up, and he's like, He's, he's such a hypocrite. He, 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 he just was talking to us yesterday about being selfless and how we connect with each other. He didn't even, he looked at me and didn't even care. You know, what, what the hypocrite is he? You made an assumption that I saw you, that I had all the time in the world, and I ignored you. What would happen if two days later you hear that my wife had just, uh, God forbid, my wife had just had an accident and I was rushing to see her? At that moment that you walk past me. Assumptions makes fool out of us. But we have big assumptions about life that can only be changed. We'll call it transformative, perspective transformation in dialogue with others. So I say, Jonathan, you know, I'm thinking, man, I need to do this. I need to make a lot of money by cheating the tax because it's, uh, I'm going to give a lot of that money back to Jesus. You know? All right. So well, I'm, I'm going to, and, and Jonathan said, well, why do you think this is a good thing? It's because I'm going to give a lot of money to Jesus. You know, like a few million dollars. And oh, what, what do you reckon? You know, well, will it be all right? Like the end it justifies the means, right? And Jonathan begins to ask me and maybe even bring some ideas that he had had some experiences and I change my perception as a result of dialogue that otherwise I wouldn't have. And I would be thinking, I'm going to give the money to Jesus. Like I'm, I'm making things up. I, if I cheat taxes, I'll probably get $10. So that's not going to help anybody. But the reality is that education, we change our perspective in dialogue, in transparent dialogue with other people. 
and we learn practices in transparent environment. We see life with Jesus in practice, not in theory books. Then the last thing, I just spent about three or four years studying four churches, four Baptist churches, and how they help people develop, particularly how they help people become disciples. And just one little, uh, one little piece of conclusion I found. The four Baptist churches studied advocated relational environment as the most critical factor implicating disciples learning. That means every church I studied acknowledged that people change in little communities. Mm -hmm. It's an immersion in transparent communities that people change. As a result of that, I believe, I'm not going to do this, as a result of that, I believe people do develop to the pattern of Jesus as they connect with 46 people in transparent environments where they share their life stories all the time. Not the big, oh, you know, you guys wouldn't be able to say that, but in, in some of my church ministries, I sit in smaller groups and, and people always share stories. 27 years ago, I was walking down the street and Jesus gave me a word. It's like, what happened since the 27 years? Have you heard anything? You know, is, is he shut shop upstairs or is he still alive? You know, he still calls himself God. It's like we, we always do that. We always have the big, big, you know. But what about? And I was walking, and I, this guy really annoyed the thing out of me. And I thought about something to say there, but I didn't say, but really, you know, I don't know. Nobody would know that. But you can say, confess your sins to one another, and you will be healed. That means we will be changed. As a result, I have worked with some young adults over the last little while, and they mention how transformative is transparent communities. And I had a, a story to show you, but I'll, I'll do it another time because I'm sure I'll be sharing about that. That is the one thing I learned in 14 years. I love preaching, I love teaching, I love ministry. Guess what? It's not changing people from the inside out, changing what they think, might even inspire what they do, but it's not forming their character. Mm -hmm. And that happens in the daily grind of being around a group, a group of God-loving people who are love you enough but not impressed with you, who will ask you the hard questions and support you, pray for you, fast for you. It's life-transforming. Don't believe me. Would you just spend the next week or two just thinking, is it worth considering what it will be like for me to be part of a transparent group of people? Just no questions asked, no exams after that. Let me pray for you. Father, I just love this group and you know that. I'm so blessed to see people that have been here for such a long time and and their character oozes with godliness and love and respect and humility and kindness. I know some of them personally and can testify that that's happening outside this meeting. And I thank you for them. I thank you for the impact that their families and, and their friends and others around them have had on them. To lead such a God-honoring and honorable life. I thank you for... Whoever has invested in them over the years. And Lord, as, as this group of people, this core church, attempts to reverse the damage of, uh, 
of, of, of the hoo-ha Christianity, the big event Christianity. And we want to see that the, the decline arrested and that people live wholeheartedly for Jesus and make Christ attractive again to the world. Father, I pray that you would speak to them as you have spoken to me in my own little life over the last few years. To invest my time in, in smaller groups of people that want to grow and develop and become everything that you designed us to be. If you're a dressmaker, if you're a tailor, we ask that you would shape us to the pattern of the life of Jesus. That when people encounter us, when our spouses, when our friends, when, when our co-workers, when our team members in, 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 in sporting events, when, when, when the uh, people that encounter us in the shopping centers, people encounter us in the, in, in the, uh, in the, on the roads, people who encounter us in, in our workplaces, may they see and smell something different. And may that be attractive enough to bring about a revival. Or a revival of sensationalism, but of real life. Real life. Character forming life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, everyone.